Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. It's so enjoyable to come to church on a Sunday and worship together with one another. Well, this morning we're continuing in the gospel according to Luke, and we're going to talk about personal ethics this morning, uh, looking at some of Jesus' words and what He has to say to us. I wonder if you've ever thought much about whether or not there are distinctly Christian personal ethics. I mean, does it make a difference in living an ethical life whether or not we're a Christian, a believer? And of course, we would say that it makes all the difference in the world because it's the power of Christ working through us that changes all the things that are really important about ethics, like the motivations behind them, our affections, what's in our heart, our attitudes, our behaviors, what we pursue in relationships, what, what our goal is in the way we live our life. I mean, since Jesus died for our sins and gave us eternal life, a new life that we experience daily now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we know that all, everything about living our lives ethically is all surrounded by what we would call the joy of divine love, being loved by God and loving Him in return. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, we thank You for Your wonderful work in our life and how You've rescued us from this world, its system, its values, from our own sin, and how You freed us and empowered us to live for the kingdom of God. And we ask that you would guide us as we look at the Scripture this morning so that we can become even greater instruments of love to this world and peace in Christ's name. Amen. Now, surely we all know, if we're here, that as Christians, we're supposed to be living a superior life. We are to put on the display to the world of God's grace and God's glory. We're to point other people to God and serve as an illustration of His salvation We know that we're not perfect, but we also know that God is perfecting our lives, and eventually by His grace, He will conform us to the very image of His Son. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 38. It's also printed for you in your worship folder this morning. And it's my hope and prayer that we'll take to heart these words of Jesus, just like His original followers did, and pursue our calling more fully. Now, we're just going to read the passage as we go through it this morning. But we should recall that we're in the middle of a sermon that Jesus has been giving to the 12 disciples that he picked, as well as many, many other disciples that were listening at the time. And last Sunday, we looked at the beginning of his his sermon on the plain, as it's called, and he talked about suffering and how he would bless his disciples in the midst of their suffering. Well, today we're talking more about what is the calling of a disciple of Jesus in this world. And we're going to learn this morning that In fulfilling our mission as a church, as Calvary Evangelical Free Church, fulfilling our mission, and in living out our own personal lives as believers in Jesus Christ, that we're called to exhibit an extraordinary love and an extraordinary mercy. Now, I picked that word on purpose, extraordinary. It's a key word here this morning that we're going to be focusing on this morning, and that is, what, you know, you look up what does extraordinary mean. We sort of throw it around a lot, but it means more than. It means going beyond. It means phenomenal, most unusual, rarely equaled, strikingly impressive, surprising, without precedent, and not following the general pattern. And it's that last definition that we're going to be focusing on this morning is that extraordinary love and mercy means that we don't follow the general pattern, 
of love and mercy. And what we're going to see this morning in verses 27 to 35 is that Christian love exceeds cultural love, both in its quantity and in its depth, its quality. And in verses 36 to 38, the Christian mercy exceeds cultural mercy, both in the quantity and the quality of that mercy. Now, one note, I want you to follow along actually with the Scripture as it's been printed for you in your worship folder, because you'll, if you compare a lot of English versions, you're going to see a lot of different paragraph breaks, and that's because it's not easy to divide it. But we're going to be following this division, so if you follow that, it'll be less confused, and it will make more sense to you what we're talking this morning. So that's the paragraph division that we're going to be following this morning. So let's begin by looking at this first connection between what does it mean to be a witness for Jesus and also to be demonstrating His character. Now, notice that Jesus begins right away as he's in this next section, but I say to you who hear, that's a great question. I mean, do you hear him? Jesus is interested in serious listeners, not casual listeners, people who want to learn from what he has to say, not people who want to play with what he has to say. So I know that you've come this morning, and I hope you're eager to learn as a disciple and that you're ready to hear what Jesus in the Scriptures has to say to you this morning. So in our passage, verses 27 to 30 is about loving your enemies, and then verse 31 to 34 is about loving your neighbors. So loving your enemies, loving your neighbors. And we begin in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So loving one's enemies uh, involves having this continual concern for them, that, uh, that God is doing a work through us regardless. Now, enemies are people that we've already been introduced to in Jesus' sermon. Um, Just you look up there, he pronounces all these woes on these enemies, and he's talking about very worldly, exploitive people, uh, unbelievers and persecutors in our world, and he pronounces all these judgments on them. But you know, enemies don't just fit that extreme category. They also fit the category of what some might call personal detractors. Personal detractors. I think we all have personal detractors in our life, people who are opposed to us. And in fact, it might be easier for us this morning to personally focus on those people in our lives. I mean, unless you have active persecutors and people that are going after your throat, I mean, then you can think about those people. But it's a lot easier to focus on how much grace and love we need to extend to people that are even just a personal detractor in our life that are opposing us. And if we start here, we can start thinking about what this would mean on an even greater scale if that day were to ever come in our lives. And perhaps you can even think of personal names as we go through this this morning. Now, Jesus gives four commands that parallel the four blessings He gave back in verse, 42, verse, verse 22. Luke 6.22 says, Blessed are, men, are you when men hate you, ostracize you, cast insults at you, and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. And then here he says four things, love your enemies, meaning do good to those who hate you, bless those who persecute you, and pray for those who malign or mistreat you. 
Now, doing these things shows the depth of Christian love and forgiveness because the only way we can do that is because we know we've been forgiven. And this is how we were toward God, but God changed our lives, and we reach out to others in love because of that. Now, last week, we talked about the parallels here in Luke's sermon here and the Apostle Peter who was present at the time and what he would write later in his first epistle. Well, here's another one this morning, so you can turn briefly, to you, if you want to, to 1 Peter 3.14, and you're going to see another parallel between what Jesus is teaching here in the sermon, and undoubtedly the Apostle Peter heard Jesus teach similar things on multiple occasions as he was following him around and learning from him, and then becomes uh, the leader of the apostles. And so in 1 Peter 3.14 we read, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks for you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And keep a good conscience, so that in doing the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I hope you can see the parallel, and actually, that's a wonderful companion to this little the sermon that we're reading in Luke 6, is to read the epistle of 1 Peter, because so much of it overlaps. But then Jesus gives four specific examples for us right away in verses 29 to 30. He says, to those who slap you or strike you on one cheek, give them the other also. Now, he might be talking about physical abuse, but more likely, culturally, what he's talking about is the expression of how you would give a public insult in the day by slapping someone on the cheek. And he's teaching that as his followers, we should bear it and be ready for more uh, because that's the way it typically happens. People publicly insult you, well, they're going to just keep on doing it, be prepared. And it's what he himself would do by his own example and the example of love and would keep him from retaliating. Second of all, not only will people publicly insult you, he says, to those who take away your outer garment, give the inner one also. And he's talking about here people taking advantage of you because you bear the name of Christ. So they're going to insult you, and they're going to take advantage of you. Now, in Matthew's account, he talks a lot about don't take legal action to get yours back, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's probably most likely talking about robbery through borrowing. You've probably experienced that before. People borrow things, and then they never return it, and it's not an oversight. Yes. It's the same kind of thing. Some think maybe he's talking about giving to the needy in general, but probably not in this particular passage. But Jesus is teaching that you know, giving is sometimes, in a sense, giving, quote-unquote, is going to happen by unpleasant circumstances sometimes in our lives. And, but love doesn't stop. People want to take advantage of us as believers and that's just going to continue. And then these next two things are probably an explanation of this last piece. So there are really two main ideas, and that is publicly insulting you for being a Christian and then taking advantage of you. And so then the next two, to those who ask or beg of you, give without discrimination. It might mean those who have legitimate needs and the basics of life in this passage, but again, it's probably still related to the idea of this so-called borrowing. And even though they may be your enemies, you still want to meet their needs, Jesus is saying. I mean, when you think about it, even people who don't like you, they still have needs in life. You know, and we don't need to return the non-liking toward people who don't like us. We can still lend to them and be gracious to them and meet their needs. And then as a summary, to those who take, for whatever reason, don't demand the item back. Again, might be thinking through, don't go after them through lawsuits or 
or stealing it back uh, for not returning it. But these things happen. And you've probably noticed it. You've probably, if you've lived long enough, you've experienced it if you've lived boldly for Christ. Um, I think probably a number of you have experienced it maybe on short-term mission trips or longer-term mission environments that you've been in. Uh, Sometimes, you know, you, you come in for a variety of reasons and there are always thieves everywhere in the world. People steal things. But then there's often, there are those people who just want to see how you're going to respond. They know you're a Christian. You've told them you're a Christian. You told them that's why you're there, to tell them about Jesus. And so they steal something just to get your attention and see what you're going to do. I know that some of my friends have experienced that on trips I've taken them on. And then sometimes people will insult you, not because they don't like you, but just because they want to see what you're going to do after they insult you. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, people will do that too because, well, you're a Christian. So what are you going to do? And then they'll just insult you in front of people or embarrass you. But we're supposed to endure all this for the sake of love because we believe God sees it all. We're going to be receiving a reward because we follow Jesus and that God will get his justice in the end. We don't need to really worry about it. And we have to remember Jesus' own example. In Romans 5.10 it says, For if while we were enemies... We were his enemies. While we were his enemies, God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And God saved us and came to us first, even in our state of being his enemy. Well, in these commands and examples, you'll notice, too, that the emphasis is not really on being passive. So it's not really just sort of sitting around, yeah, people are going to insult me, I'll just take it. People are going to steal from me, I'll just take it. But talk about It talks about being active in love and doing good and blessing people and praying for them. And all of this activity is purposefully and intentionally directed toward people who don't like you, like us. Now, we shouldn't overinterpret this passage as some have and somehow we're supposed to suspend civil laws, you know, that there shouldn't be any consequences in, in the world for people behaving this way. Of course there should. But Jesus is talking about personal ethics and the ethics of a personal disciple and how we relate to people. And he's also, we shouldn't be over-interpreting this and forgetting context because these are just general statements and we're not called to be oblivious to the context in which things happen. There's always context. That's what gives meaning to what's going on here. And we need to be aware of those things so that by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can apply what Jesus is telling us to do. And Luke's recording these highly charged rhetorical statements for that purpose because they have a powerful effect on us. We think about them. We remember them. We know we still have progress to make in these areas. They're general sweeping remarks. And and as they get applied, even as we go through the Gospels, you're going to see them being applied a little bit differently than you might think they'll be applied by Jesus as we go through. And there'll be plenty for us to, to meditate on. But they're not supposed to be in universal laws that we reduce every, every situation to a simple question. I mean, life is not simplistic. It's not. You know, and once you pass 30, I think you figure it out. But life is not simplistic. It doesn't have simple answers. And every single circumstance has some unique twist on it. And so it's not always right or best or helpful to just look at a difficult situation and reduce it all to, oh, what would the loving thing be to do? 
That's not always the most helpful thing to do because there's so much more in the context that we have to understand, and we can't ignore the realities surrounding us and the radical calling and the other things that we have to do that Jesus wants us to do. So, but once we're shocked by these words, then we can start taking these things into consideration. We can ask deeper questions about how in this particular situation with this context and, and all these outcomes and these people, what really is the application of this passage? What does it mean to be insulted in this situation? What should I do? Or if I'm taken advantage of? And if we keep that in mind, then we can, by the help of the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures and all the other things that we're called to do according to the Bible, we can answer those situations and we can, we can do it through prayer and come up with the right solutions. So in other words, it's not a formula, right? Life's not a formula. It's about following the Scriptures, the principles, and, and, and letting the Holy Spirit guide you through prayer and how to respond in these circumstances. So Jesus is very specific here, and he goes right in to talk about love with a particular group of people, loving your enemies. So it's like we've zoomed in, now we're zooming out in the next verse, and he's going to talk about loving your neighbors. And then at the very end, you'll see enemies come up again in verse 35, so we'll zoom back in on that group of people. That's the subsection that we're in here. And so then he goes on to talk about loving your neighbors. And he says in verse 31, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so for them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit, credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good to them and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And we'll get to the last verse later. But that sort of sums up the subsection. But here we're, we're now taking a little broader perspective because all this, this, this language about loving other people and what is involved there applies to everyone, not, not just enemies. I mean, it applies to the strangers you meet. It applies to your neighbors. It applies to people in this building. Um, it applies to a lot of people. And so in verse 31, we read what we really have come to be known as the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The same, it's, a, it's a modification here of it. And there are numerous parallels, as some of you might know, in ancient literature. Numerous parallels in Jewish and Greek and Roman literature. But what's unique about Jesus saying is that it's perhaps the strongest and the most selfless expression. And of course, it's rooted in the gospel. And it's the governing principle that applies to everything above in our text and everything that we're looking at now. So in verses 32 to 34, Jesus makes three comparisons, uses the same rhetorical device on us, and perhaps even their intensity is increasing as we go through them. And he says, well, loving those who love you first or in return is just sort of the simple courtesy of living life. Right? I mean, every Christian ought to be doing that. It's not that you shouldn't love those who love you, but that's what everyone in the world does too. So, I mean, that's, that's what sinners in the world or worldlings, anyone who doesn't name the name of Christ, that's what they all do in our culture. And they live life decently. They can do that if they want to. But, you know, it's not when we love like our culture loves, that's not particularly impressive to God. Because even an unbeliever can do that. And it doesn't deserve any special mention or applause if we just sort of look like the culture, but we just happen to be a really nice version of it. 
You see, our love has to be deeper, and it has to be more. We have to do more of it. And same thing, doing good to those who benefit you or benefit you later in a relationship, I mean, that's the typical approach we take to relationships because we're looking for people that are similar to ourselves typically, that we, there's some kind of a mutual benefit that's going to happen in this relationship. And that's who we decide we're going to be friends with. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course we're going to be doing that. We live in this world. That's how we are as people. And every Christian is going to be doing this. But since the world already does this, it isn't particularly impressive to God that you make friends that way. And it's not particularly impressive um, to other people because they already experience that. You don't stand out. There's no special mention, no reward. But Christians ought to have a deeper longing for friendships with people and a deeper desire for, for making them and doing good in the world. And then finally, lending again to those who can and will pay you back. Of course, in that society, it has a unique situation. But, you know, basically following the general principles of how do you manage money in your society, and of course, lending the money, you get your money back, whether you charge interest, etc. But, but you're only going to be lending money typically if you know, well, they're going to be able to pay you back. Well, again, that's how everyone else handles money. They're always worried about it. So every Christian is going to likely follow the rules of our culture, our society that we live in. That's fine. But we don't particularly stand out if all we do is follow what our culture does. We have to do it at a deeper level and our love for people's real needs in meeting them. So the world's standards of ethics basically aren't high enough. They're just too easy. They're too easy to keep. They're not very challenging. I mean, we choose as believers to love people whether or not we get love back, even if it takes our whole life loving somebody who never returns that love. We still do it. And we do good whether or not we receive good back from people or they never respond, never say thank you, and they just continue to take, take, take from us. We still give to people. And we land even if we're going to likely lose out in the end. But we have Christ, and so like Him, we're frequently trying to preempt situations. We've already seen that in the Gospel of Luke so far. Have you, have you tried that before? I mean, it's, it's a joy to do that. Jesus did it all the time as we've been reading through here. And so that is when, when a situation comes up and people are watching you, and somebody insults you or something, and the world just expects, well, you're going to follow along, and you're going you're to do something hateful back to them. But then you sort of look around, take the opportunity, and you purposefully decide to do something loving or to say something kind, and it stirs everybody up because they're expecting you to hate someone who hates you, but instead you've chosen to love. Or the same thing, doing good to somebody when there's, there's nothing that you can likely get in return, or just doing a good deed. Those types of things, waiting for people to watch and understand the situation, and then providing them an example for a conversation about why you're doing good in this particular case, or maybe giving abundantly and generously when it's just like, why would you do that? It's too much. And it just goes on. This is an opportunity. Then we get to verse 34, and it recaps the situation with these three comparisons, and we zoom back in, reincorporating the enemies in verse 35. And it talks about love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be called the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Ties us back into verse 27, where He opened with enemies. So you see this is a section, it's like you're talking about the enemies, we're coming out a little bit to talk about all people, we're going back in to talk about enemies a little bit more. 
And the promise from Jesus is that if we do what he says, he's, there's going to be a great reward. God's praise, God's blessing in our life, God taking pleasure in what we do, and he's going to bless our future. And we know this. And also, we're going to prove ourselves worthy of the title, Sons of the Most High. Now, of course, we know there's only one eternal Son of the Most High. That's Jesus' title. But see, he even shares that title that we could be children of the Most High. And we can prove that by living the way he lived and loving the way he loved, by fulfilling our calling and who we're called to be. And then even more so, as the, section, as the verse, verse ends up, our loving behavior actually mirrors God's characteristics because this is what he does. He's kind to the ungrateful, right? He sends rains upon the just and the unjust. He's kind to the ungrateful, even to the evil. He's kind to them. And that's the group we used to be a part of, was that group. You know, Christian love exceeds cultural love. So let's think about it this way. So we all, I think everyone here lives here. We live here. We live in the culture of New Jersey and New York City or wherever you're from. You know, think about your society, your culture. Well, how can you stand apart? How can you stand above that culture and provide better quality love and all these characteristics and more of it than what's expected from your society? We all live and breathe it. So how can we stand out and above? We love our neighbors and we love our enemies. We love beyond the expectations of what's the cultural norm. And it's because we remain amazed at Jesus' love for us, that he would live his life for us, die his death for us, that he would be raised for our justification. And we remain shocked by these words of Jesus that he speaks because they're so challenging, but he brings them to life within our life by the fact that we have the Holy Spirit within us, and we can actually see progress and take delight and joy in doing the things that He asks us to do. And in fulfilling the mission of the church and living out our lives, we're called to exhibit this extraordinary love that goes beyond what is normally expected of our culture and society that we live in. Well, then the second connection between witnessing for Jesus and His character has to do with Christian mercy, so love, next topic is mercy, that it would exceed cultural mercy. So be merciful in general. That's how verse 36 begins our paragraph. And next topic, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And then we're going to see that we're supposed to be merciful in judgment in verse 37 and then merciful in giving in verse 38. So it begins with just being merciful. And Jesus again makes this comparison to God the Father and His expression of mercy. And as children of the Heavenly Father, we're supposed to be like Him too. It should be a character quality of ours that's increasing in measure, that we're becoming more and more merciful people. And we shouldn't be overly harsh. We shouldn't be too quick at uh, uh, getting upset at others. Nor should we think that, you know, we can righteous, that somehow by our own anger we can bring about God's righteousness in the world. That's a Bible verse, right, from James 1.19. It says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And then, you know, this is worth particular attention, of course, because we all live in a culture that is uh, just filled with unfiltered anger and rage. It's like there's no end to it. It just keeps going. And it's very easy to get sucked into that 
and that mindset and that attitude and the way we, we, we have. But it's not going to bring about God's righteousness to simply follow worldly ways of trying to bring about righteousness. So mercy has a lot of expressions, but there are two that are brought up in our passage today. One is judgment, mercy and judgment, and then mercy and giving. Mercy and judgment, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. So Jesus is talking about judgmentalism here, which plagues a lot of people. And so judging here in this passage means placing yourself above someone else and using your own human standards by which you're going to judge them. So it's like putting yourself in the place of God, but you use your own standards to make those judgments. That's judgmentalism. And condemning then means to look down on other people with a superior attitude, as though you're better than they are. And so we read again in James 4.11, you can read the whole thing on your own later, but James 4.11, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your brother? And then forgiving here means releasing people from their sins against you very quickly. Not holding on to them, holding it over them, begrudging forgiveness, but we're supposed to grant it quickly. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, Jesus, Jesus is not advocating some kind of a lack of discernment, which there are clear commands elsewhere all throughout the Old and New Testament. There's a difference between judging properly and being judgmental. And that difference, of course, is crucial to understand. We must always also be interpreting every passage of Scripture in congruence with the whole of the Scripture message although not losing out on its unique contribution in the passage that we're looking at. Otherwise, we're going to make the wrong applications and the wrong understandings of things. So many people live in confusion over this verse and promote confusion because they don't follow this principle. So don't be one of those people. Read your whole Bible. Okay? Don't just read little snippets for the day and then pull something out like this and try to use it and tell everybody about what this verse means. You need to understand the whole Bible or you're just spreading confusion. And we are supposed to defend morality, but we have to be careful to always doing it in such a way that puts before people the hope in Jesus Christ at the same time, that they can be forgiven of their sins and they can find salvation and freedom in this life. Now, I want us, we need to briefly look at a, three common misuses or purposeful abuses, I would say, of Jesus' words here, purposefully abused by many. So, of course, these concerns I'm bringing up aren't really Jesus' concerns or Luke's concerns, but we need to mention them because they're a problem in our society. So the first one is, you know, people will often quote this verse, judge not, and that's about as far as they can remember, but then they'll say judge not. So, but they'll often quote it because, so this is the first one, so they'll quote it to try to preserve their own life pursuits. That's, that's one thing they'll try to do. And they know, especially as a believer, they know there are long ways away from what the gospel standards might be, but you know, this is a way you can keep people at arm's length. You just simply say, judge not. You're judging me. Who are you to judge me? In other words, it's used to justify sin before one another in the church. And they can refuse 
godly input, especially from trusted friends. I mean, that's what we're talking about. You know, if, if you find yourself in a situation where you're constantly having to quote this verse to your best Christian friends who are pointing out things in your life, maybe you should re-examine your life a little bit. Now, on the other hand, you know, if the person who's coming at you really is being judgmentalist, well, then let them have it and say, judge not loud and clear right in their face. Yeah. And feel free to spit. Okay. Because Jesus does not like judgmentalism at all because people put themselves in his spot and only he can do the judging. So, but it's his standards that we're looking at. So that's one abuse, purposeful abuse. The second one I find sort of sad is that Christians will often be too quick to defend other Christians. Like they don't even really know enough about the situation, but then they quote the verse, well, you know, you really shouldn't be judging so-and-so. But they don't even really know what's going on in that situation. And they'll say things, well, you know, you're judging again, why don't you mind your own spirituality? You know, we don't really know his heart, whatever that means. I still haven't figured that out. But in other words, we use it to lower standards of morality. And, you know, we really shouldn't be too quick to defend other people in this kind of thing anyway. I mean, they can, they can stand on fall on their own. You know, don't, don't offer your services in advance to defend them. So, I mean, every Christian is accountable for his own life, and we don't really, anyway, know what's going on in somebody else's life. Um, but you know what? We could be preventing inadvertently a really good conversation that that person needs to have with, with some of their closest friends who would follow Christ about things in their life that really need to be brought up and dealt with according to Scripture and through prayer. But then again, on the other hand, you know, if somebody's being judgmental uh, in the whole situation, feel free to say loud and clear, stop judging, you hypocrite. That's fine. So we don't like judgmentalism. But the worst case is it is often used as an excuse not to confront other people. Now, of course... You shouldn't just go confront people if you don't know them, okay? That's not your job, okay? So if you don't know the person, then your job is to pray, okay? But if you're a really close friend of someone and you see something going on in their life and who's a believer, you know, you need to go talk to them about what you see and, and confront them on things. And, but so often in the church these days, we hear things like, you know, well, I want to talk to him, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to judge him. I don't want to judge her, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want her to think that I'm being judgmental. You know? and, uh, and it's like this internal angst that so many believers I run into these days seem to have, and, and this sort of like almost, I'll just say it, I think it's cowardice. It's cowardice and, and not wanting to talk to somebody, this fear you know, of not wanting to be labeled as a judgy person. But then it's really focusing on yourself, and that's what you're really concerned about. It's an excuse not to be responsible, but the Bible teaches us to love one another deeply. It's a terrible tragedy of cowardice and, and I think, severe unspirituality, although people who usually, the ones I run into who use this pattern of behavior, like, try to presume that they're really spiritual people. But really what's going on often is a capitulation to society's values of tolerance and relativism, and individualism. And then they call it Christian love. But that love didn't come from the Bible. It didn't come from Jesus. That kind of love comes from the world. It's just cultural. 
Now, these three observations don't lessen the necessity of other things like eliminating judgmentalism from the church. This is a real and present danger, judgmentalism in the church. Nevertheless, the purity of the church, our pursuit of holiness together, right, the values of what we understand as church discipline, none of that is abrogated by this passage. They're not opposed to each other. Again, if you read the whole Bible and you understand how things fit together, this passage actually thoroughly supports church discipline because it's part of it. It's the very first step. It's going to someone you know and love deeply and helping them see things in their life or staying out of it and not judging them, right? So judgmentalism is a failure to forgive one another, and it's a serious sin that's too prevalent in the church. You know, you travel around to enough churches, you've been in enough, you, you interview certain types of people who leave um, churches, uh, yeah, you'll hear a very constant uh, theme, a complaint that, oh yeah, people at church, all they do is run around, complain about everybody, complain about everything, and condemn other people. So, but that's not where we're supposed to focus our attention this morning, but that is a real problem in churches, and I pray that it never takes hold of us here. But as we look at this passage, and you think about these things that Jesus is saying, here are some self-reflective questions that could be helpful to us. One is, you know, we all are going to fail at times, you realize, I hope. So, do you place yourself above others too often? Do you look down upon other people as a result of that? Do you generally succeed or fail when it, when it comes to being merciful and forgiving? Is that something that's easy for you to do? Or maybe is that an area of growth in your life? The encouragement here, you'll notice, because we, we tend to skip over that part, but the encouragement is that if we judge rightly and we forgive rightly, we're going to be rewarded. And the warning here is if we do it wrongly, you're going to be punished. And notice also here that Jesus and, and Luke, they don't even give you any examples this time. Well, you know, that's another way of emphasizing something is by no examples. Because the focus here is on the principle. And if you can understand what he's saying in this whole principle of not being a judgmentalist and in forgiving other people, well, then you are going to be able to apply it in every situation that you run into as you rely upon the Holy Spirit and in prayer. Well, then finally, verse 38, be merciful in giving. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put, poured into your lap. For the measure with which you use, it will be measured back to you. So Jesus, again, in the sermon brings up giving. Although here, it could also really be another way of referencing mercy. So you give out mercy liberally and charitably toward people. In other words, it's a continuation, really, of the same thing of not being a judgmentalist, a summary-like statement, perhaps, of giving mercy. But anyway, being a generous Christian, whether it's here talking about just generosity, or whether it's talking about finances, whether it's talking about uh, being, what you do with the mercy that you have to give to other people, it's going to result in God blessing you as you bless other people. And there's this illustration of measuring out grain, and so the first thing you do is you find a nice big container. And then it's large and generous, hopefully. And what you do is you put grain in it, press it down, shake it, make room for more. You've probably done something like this anyway. Put more in it. You maximize all that you can get in there, and then you just dump more on top. 
and it flows over into your robes. That's the image that's being given here of how God measures out blessing to us in accordance with how we are merciful to other people and how we give. So he'll personally see to it that we receive an overflowing blessing. And that's true. Now, if you're not sure that it's true, that if you're a super generous Christian or you're super generous with mercy, that God is going to give you back the same amount of mercy and generosity, well, maybe it's because you're not as generous as you think you are. Or maybe some of your spiritual motivations are off. Or maybe you're only using the standard measure that the world uses. And you need to go find a bigger measure, a Christian-sized measure, and then go out there and bless people with that. And see what God does for you. Because Christian mercy is to exceed cultural mercy. Again, look at the society we live in. So it's pretty easy to do. You can go around, you can interview all your friends, your enemies if you want to, if they will talk to you. And you can ask them, so, you know, what are, what are the limits of mercy in our culture or society? You know, and that, that's what they expect from each other and even from you. But as Christians, we're called to exceed that both in quantity and in quality. And the world, especially our culture today, is not typically known for mercy. They're not known for being free from judgmentalism. Oh yeah, they love to point the finger at everybody else, but we all know who the most judgmental people in the world are. It's the worldlings these days. And the world is not as generous as they think they are. They like to think they're very generous, but we know they're not. So we can exceed all of that, set it up an example, and get a conversation going about Christ. You know, in contrast, you know, Christians, we're known for this. We should be. We're known for giving out liberally from our resources. We're known for being merciful and forgiving of other people. We're known for that. We're known for giving people the benefit of the doubt and not being a judgmentalist, but to judge rightly and to help people understand what's true and right and good. So in fulfilling our mission and living our life, we're called to exhibit this extraordinary mercy as well. Now, one of my favorite... Uh, uh, preachers is Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, one of probably the most gifted uh, preachers of the 20th century from London. And in his uh, sermon on this particular passage, he just simply asks this question of us, which I think is very helpful. And he says, as I examine my activities and look at my life in detail, can I claim for it that there's something about it which just cannot be explained in ordinary terms, and which can only be explained in terms of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a wonderful question of reflection. And hopefully it's exactly what's been going through our minds this morning, that is there something in my life that just cannot be explained by ordinary means, but it's only because of my relationship to Jesus Christ that makes my life an extraordinary example. And the topic we've been discussing in Luke and going over many times through this gospel, we'll continue to go over these topics. So this isn't the last time you're going to hear about love and mercy and the why and the how. But today we just learned that Christian love exceeds cultural love, Christian mercy exceeds cultural mercy, and there's so much more that's coming in the gospel according to Luke. But today we learned that this love and mercy that we, we give out to people, it's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve enduring injustices. It's not going to be an easy path to follow, but we know that Jesus is going to supply all the strength that we need to follow him faithfully. And we need to keep this larger picture in mind from all these detailed statements that we looked at this morning because we need to capture the vision and the understanding of what Jesus is putting before his followers here so we can be motivated in the proper way and really develop the character of Jesus in our life and put it on display. 
There are a couple errors we want to avoid when we look at passages like this. One is we, we don't want to fail to qualify the general statements so that we fail to comprehend them. In other words, these statements are given for rhetorical effect. They are bold and in your face. And of course, we need to qualify them according to the Spirit and prayer and the Word and context and all of those things. Because context gives meaning. What does it really mean to love? Second of all, we don't want to fall into the error of overqualifying them either. And so we're moving their demanding specificity. In other words, we shouldn't be looking for exceptions all the time so, they never, so that we never actually have to keep the rule. So we want to avoid that mistake too. And it's not easy to apply what Jesus has commanded. And if you're left struggling for specifics, don't be overwhelmed and, uh, because you'll miss the point. It's not about following a bunch of rules. But here's the help. We must have a heart of obedience of a disciple. Like many of those people who were listening on that day. And if you have the heart of a disciple, that you want to follow Jesus, you're going to be okay because you have the Holy Spirit living within you and you have the Scriptures in front of you. And we have to use discernment and wisdom from them. So keep working on gaining that from your time in the Word. And we must practice and follow examples. You know, there are plenty of other Christians that we can follow from this passage and take risks of faith and doing things that might not even seem comfortable at the time. And if you're actively doing them, even in small steps, you're going to be okay. And we have to ask for strength and confirmation from God in prayer. And don't leave this out because we're not pursuing this to gain any kind of special merit. It's because we want to express the love of Jesus to people. And if we pray, God will guide us in how we live this out in our lives. So think over some common situations you find yourself in. You know, where do you want to excel in what you've learned from Jesus today on the Sermon on the Plain? I mean, perhaps there's a situation that you just wish, oh, now I could have handled that situation differently, you know, and not just for a better outcome, um, but truly in an extraordinarily Christian manner. And so ask, how, how can you apply this radical Christian love and radical Christian mercy, even creatively in circumstances that, that will really cause people to take notice and want to talk to you about what's motivating you? Remember, we have nothing to lose, and uh, we only have souls to gain. I mean, we're on a mission. That's what this whole sermon's about anyway. It's about fulfilling the mission that Jesus has put us on. And next Sunday, we're going to finish up Jesus' Sermon on the Plain and where He calls for righteousness and fruit and wisdom in our lives. But this week, let's focus on fulfilling, what it means to fulfill our mission as a church together, what it means to live out our lives personally in such a way that we really do exhibit this extraordinary kind of love and an extraordinary kind of mercy in a culture that just doesn't expect it but really needs it. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have saved us from the world, from its values that are so messed up at times, and even when they're somewhat on the right track, they're so shallow. We thank you for saving us from its system, its control. We thank you for saving us from our sin and that you have rescued us. We thank you for giving to us your Holy Spirit, for giving to us your Scripture, and we thank you for this calling to be able to live out this unique Christ-likeness in, in our world. And we pray that you would guide us and that our personal ethics would just become more thoroughly Christian 
as we live in our society. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, so that you will gain the glory for your own name. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.